Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Eccentric, the makers of the K-Box and the new K-Pulley. Guys, flywheel training's really grown in popularity of late, and although it's something that's been around for a while, the simple reason that it's grown in popularity is because it works. We've been lucky to have a K-Box in our weight room for the past three years, and we've seen some really great things when it comes to improving the athlete's ability to change direction, and then looking at our return to play protocols with different lower body injuries with the student athletes. The love-hate relationship that everyone has with the K-Box is now just going to grow more with the addition of the K-Pulley. The ability to do standing presses, pulls, rip-throughs, and knee drive exercises is just going to be another arsenal to our training and another addition to the love-hate relationship that our student-athletes have with the awesome tools that come from Eccentric. Go ahead and hop over to Eccentric.com today to check out what they have. Guys, I can't recommend it enough, and I guarantee you won't be disappointed not just with the products, but with the awesome customer service that Eccentric provides. Hey, everybody. If you enjoy the podcast and the content that it provides, make sure you hop over and check out the all-new Strength Coach Network. The Strength Coach Network is a combination of the CVA SPS community and the Rugby Strength Coach community, bringing you what is sure to be the Internet's leading resource for continuing education for strength and conditioning professionals. Combining these two resources has allowed us to bring some of the best content from some of the best minds in the world together for your one-stop shop to better improve the continuing education for not just yourself, but your entire staff. Bringing together all of the lectures from the Rugby Strength Coach community, along with the lectures exclusively done for the Central Virginia Sport Performance community, and all the lectures performed at the Central Virginia Sport Performance Seminar, make this an absolute must for performance coaches around the world. The world-class lectures at the Strength Coach Network are not all that you'll see as well. The discussion in the forums and the support and the career guidance from some of the top practitioners in the world, from people all over the world, makes this an absolute must and a great place for you to network, learn, and grow as a performance professional. So hop on over to strengthcoachnetwork.com and use the code CVASPS, that's C-V-A-S-P-S, to get your 48-hour trial for only a dollar. We're sure you're going to find great value in the Strength Coach Network and are really excited to have you involved. So hop on over to strengthcoachnetwork.com and use the code CVASPS to check it out today. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today, guys, we have an absolute gem of a discussion. We are going to sit down and discuss asymmetries and the role of research and where they fit in the training of athletes with Dr. Sean Maloney, Dr. Anthony Turner, and Chris Bishop. Guys, this talk is going to cover a wide spectrum of things when it comes to looking at asymmetries, including you know, what Chris's research is, what they're looking at, how they've developed it, and then going back and talking about everything and anything from statistical relevance and how standard deviations are so wide with these and the reasons behind that the actual role of sport task when it comes to asymmetries and how each individual task needs to be taken into account. You know, functional um, asymmetries when it comes to like changes just based off of what you do in your sport. And then the role of bilateral and unilateral training when it comes to developing athletes. This is really an awesome talk, guys. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Let's get right to it. Gentlemen, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. 
Yeah, good. Thanks Thank very you. much for having us on, Jay. Much Thanks, appreciated. Jay. Yeah, yeah, Thank so, you, Jay. I really appreciate the invite. Yeah, listen, so we typically don't do this as a, as a roundtable type thing, so I'm excited about this. So let's just go around the room here real quick and, and get a quick intro so people know who we're talking with. Cool. So, um, Sean Maloney, run a strength conditioning company over here on the other side of the pond in England. Um, PhD myself, but strength and conditioning coach first and foremost. Um, and I lecture with these guys at Middlesex University and also at University of Bedford as well. So predominantly on strength and conditioning courses, but across kind of all sports science, biomechanics, and uh, generally a jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> um, Chris Bishop, uh, so work full-time at Middlesex University, but also still coaching. A um, little bit of coaching primarily in track and field athletes over here in the UK. Uh, I run the master's degree in strength and conditioning here at Middlesex. Um, currently undertaking my PhD alongside my role here uh, under the, uh, the direct supervision of Dr. Anthony Turner next to me. <laughs> um, and we're looking into uh, sort of between limb differences, asymmetry, that sort of thing, and how that corresponds and impacts on performance measures, if you like, in professional footballers or soccer athletes, I should say, if I'm on an American podcast. <laughs> um, and uh, I also am currently the chairman of the UK Strength and Conditioning Association as well. And uh, yeah, Anthony Turner, I'm work with uh, these guys over at Middlesex uh, University. I look after our postgraduate programs and then feed into the um, um, uh, MSc in strength and conditioning and, and some of the other research projects that, that we have going on. Well, I think that we should start out probably, Chris, with, with you since you're the one diving into the research right now. So let's talk about what you're looking at and, and you can call them footballers. I played soccer in college. So I'm, <laughs> yes. I'm educated enough to know what you mean. Um, let, let's let's dive into that because, you know, when you talk asymmetries and things of that nature, it, that's kind of an open-ended topic where it can be front to back, left to right, in and out. So so let's go into what you're looking at and, and what you guys are digging through. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, so I, I guess we kind of spent quite a bit of time, you know, reviewing all the existing literature out there. And I guess to, to fast forward to where we are now, um, I feel like we've kind of come out of a bit of a rabbit hole recently. So our project is looking at these between limb imbalances in, in healthy football athletes, uh, professionals. And I guess one of the, the key things we've started to notice really is um, if you've got a healthy athlete that hasn't really been injured any time recently, and you also have an understanding of their, their injury history in the past. <clears throat> there isn't perhaps any obvious reason why they have a between limb deficit. And so if there's no obvious reason why there's a, a deficit there, because they're healthy and they're not injured and they have been healthy for some time, we're starting to wonder you know, how, how useful that asymmetry value or that asymmetry percentage you get is, You know, that 5%, that 10%, that 15%, because it's just a... It's just an arbitrary value at the moment. So we're trying to bring some more context into how to interpret that value. And one of the things that we've been looking at recently, <clears throat> excuse me, is uh, looking at the direction of the asymmetry, which is something that Sean's alluded to in some of his previous research as well. And that's kind of effectively tries to, or doesn't try, effectively determines which leg 
gets the larger score out of the two. If you're looking at like peak force on a jump test or something like that, you'll have an asymmetry percentage value. And that's because one leg obviously produces a larger value than the other. But what we're interested in is does that same leg consistently produce the larger value over time with longitudinal monitoring? And if it doesn't, if it switches sides, then how usable is that information? So it's really about trying to establish um, whether the direction of the asymmetry as well as the magnitude changes a lot. It's trying to establish that over a long period because most of the studies out there, and I'm happy to admit we've been guilty of this as well, are snapshot studies over a single time point, and they don't often report what time of year the data has been collected. You know, is it in the season? Is it pre-season? Is it when the players are fatigued, et cetera, et cetera? So we're trying to provide a little bit more depth to uh, a topic area that arguably has has had that kind of stuff missing and, and the, the end goal here is to try and determine whether asymmetry can can be used as part of the ongoing monitoring process like you know regular output measures really that's sensational so now sean let me jump over to you with this as we get moving because you've kind of been at the front end of all this when it comes to the research end and you're coaching guys in the trenches there as well so when you're looking at, at, at asymmetries and what you're diving into and pulling out, you know, with the layers of the onion here, what are you noticing that's going to alter your training program when you're dealing with these guys? Well, ultimately, I guess the first thing is making sure that what we can do kind of on the shop floor is practical. So it's great to have force plates and they're becoming more commonplace in more training environments, more NGBs, more clubs are able to get hold of things like PASCOs, which are relatively cheap, cost-effective ways of getting into the in-depth stuff but still most coaches working in youth athletes different populations that don't have that are going to need practical options for assessing asymmetries so trying to make it simple stuff we can bolt into the kind of testing we're doing already so using apps like my jump or jump mats can still give us a kind of down and dirty measurement of asymmetry that we can start to then interpret an action on um i guess the key thing for me is i'm a little bit biased because i work with a lot of unilateral athletes so I do a lot of work within Badminton worked a little bit within fencing, golf, tennis in the past, and these guys are going to build up asymmetries as part of their sport. There's only so much you can do within the weight room, within whatever you're doing outside of their sport that can counteract that. So it's about kind of establishing within your cohorts, within your athletes, what's the kind of allowable level of asymmetry that you're happy with. And I think that's something that particularly in asymmetric athletes like our badminton players, our fencers, our tennis players, we don't really know what an acceptable value is yet. In sports like soccer, yes, you are going to have imbalances because you're going to be right-footed or left-footed. Demands are going to be different on each limb, but it's not to the same extent as you would have in a sport like badminton or fencing where it is hugely unilaterally dominant. So short answer is we don't know how much of an effect asymmetry has, and that's what we need to work out going forward. And hopefully with some of the stuff I'm doing, some of the stuff Bish and Turner are doing, is going to help take things forward a little bit. Well, then let me ask you guys this, and, and we'll just go completely in the, in the circle. And Anthony, we'll let you start first with it. Where then are we going to start to worry where we're looking at like a functional adaptation? You know, because it's... If you get a, the chance to walk around with Dr. Bondarchuk, you can see which hip blocked every time he threw the hammer because it doesn't work anymore. You know, like, where are we now going to look at it and say, 
there has to be these morphological changes for them to be better at the sport versus where we need to stop them so that, you know, they, they don't walk like Kaiser Sose the rest of their life. <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, well, I, I think to fully answer that, we've got to continue to get under the hood of this asymmetry. And, you know, you're talking to, to Sean and, and Chris there, it's not just about this percentage. There's more to it. There's also the direction. And the other thing, probably the third layer to this is, I think, going to be strength capacity uh, as well. That's what, we're, that's what we're looking into at the moment because, you know, you have a percentage difference between the limbs, but that doesn't really give an indication of how strong they are on each limb. And maybe that's the, that's the determining factor here. And the question will start to be is, in a really strong athlete that has a, let's say, an asymmetry of, of 20%, um, is, is that actually better than a 10% asymmetry in a really weak athlete? Because what it starts to come down to is the tolerance that each leg has to the work that it has to do in front of it. And so that injury is likely to present itself when the leg has been asked to do more than it's capable of doing. You know, and in most athletes, and like Sean was saying, in fencing, they're used to fencing um, or um, doing doing lots and lots of actions on one foot relative to the other. It only comes a problem when they progress further than they normally progress in the competition, maybe two or three days in a row. And now that one leg has to do more than it had to do before. And now the injury starts to present itself. So if actually an athlete is really strong, maybe it takes longer to breach the capacity irrespective of what the asymmetry is. And some of the work that, again, Sean and, and what we're basically starting to, to really uncover is starting to show that this is a much bigger picture than what's the asymmetry. So, so I guess to, to fully answer your question, still don't know until we've done this last bit. And, uh, and, uh, and I think that's the sort of new frontier in, in, in where the guys are taking their research at the moment. But I, I think as with so much in our industry and so much with what we look at, I think that strength is going to once again, um, you know, turn out to be quite an important metric in, in all this. Well, yeah, I think that's one of the things we've touched on in the past. The kind of best way to think about an asymmetry is your weaker limb has a bigger window of opportunity for you to develop and get stronger. If you've got, let's say, a 30 centimetre vertical on right leg versus a 24 on a left, then it, we can probably infer from that that we've got more potential to develop capacity within that left limb, whereas your right limb is going to be closer to your kind of genetic biological ceiling. So thinking about it in terms of like a window of opportunity and there's more diminishing returns in the stronger leg, so we can start to focus a little more perhaps on weaker legs. I think I'll just jump in as well, uh, if, if you don't mind, Jay, and say uh, the last thing I want to do is turn this into a stats conversation. <laughs> I promise you that's not what I want to do. But what I will say is um, that if you, if you take that group asymmetry value for jump height, as Sean was talking about, as an example, you've got 20 badminton athletes and the group asymmetry value is 10 percent and obviously some individuals will be much more some will be much less what you often find is that the standard deviation of that mean value is really high like really high it's really variable as a concept so you know it's not that uncommon to see a standard deviation well over 50 percent of the group mean which for a performance-based metric is unheard of 
or probably unheard of, you know. Anthony could probably enlighten us as to what your typical standard deviation of a performance outcome measure would be, but it's it's definitely going to be a lot less than that. And actually, some of our data shows that we've had standard deviation just as high as the group mean, which is crazy. And that means that it becomes a lot harder to truly detect true change. And when you try and uh, relate that back to some of the what most of us might consider to be more meaningful research, such as training interventions, there's actually very, very few training interventions, and Sean will testify to this, that have been conducted that have had the aim of trying to reduce an asymmetry and then subsequently seen if the performance task is done better afterwards. So we don't, we don't really know from a, you know the training intervention perspective, but equally, even if we do try and change a training intervention, actually, if the... We're not, it becomes really hard to determine whether the asymmetry truly changes because you know it's such a variable concept anyway. And I think that's why, as as Anthony was was alluding to, adding the layers of the direction of asymmetry that Sean's kind of inferred about earlier on in his in his research, and that this this layer of strength capacity might be the bigger issues here because the mean value is, I don't want to say meaningless, but you know there's uh, there's immense limitations to it. I think. So then if we're looking at something where being outside of the norm is so widespread, then what happens if the player or the individual who's the exceptional to being outside the norm is outside the norm? So what if that person then is full state football? Let's say that's Cristiano. Like, do you then look at this differently and saying that maybe the reason he can hit a set piece with that left peg is because his right leg is that much more dominant and he's that much more stable and able to absorb and produce force off of that and that's the determining factor to his performance? Or would that still be considered something that could be putting him in, in, a, in a bad spot? Um, I think even dominance is task specific as well, you know, like, uh, we know which leg you'd kick a ball with. Um, and some of the, there's a guy called Tom Dos Santos up at Salford university that's shown this on a couple of the papers they they've done, which is actually they report like peak force impulse asymmetry at different time points during like a mid thigh pull test as an example. And actually most of the subjects show the asymmetry on the same limb across those three metrics, but that's because they're all strength-based metrics within a strength-based task. And then when you add in change your direction speed asymmetry from like a 505 test, for example, actually the subjects show limb dominance on the other side. <laughs> so it's a, it's a really complicated matter. I'm Sean, Sean's probably got some other thoughts on that as well, but it's very task specific and you could almost argue it's metric specific within the same test as well, which I appreciate it. I've not really answered your question. I've just complicated it. <laughs> but maybe Sean's got some thoughts no, as well. that's great. I love the direction we're going with that. Well, yeah, completely. And even if we look at the same kind of task, if we look at jumping, uh, if we say a split force plate with a two-leg jump, we're recording your left limb and your right limb. In that two-leg jump, you might have a dominant right limb. But then if you do single-leg tests, you might have a dominant left limb. So, yeah, as Bish says, it can be completely all over the place. So for me, it's always going to come down to a capacity issue more than an actual asymmetry issue. So I want to be looking at things like 
if it's Cristiano, I want to be looking at things like hamstring strength, adductor strength, things like that around capacity rather than the asymmetry. I love yeah. it. I love it. So then, Anthony, we were warned before to go to you if we wanted to talk about numbers. <laughs> and, and I'm a numbers nerd. So when we're talking about how these things seem to have all these massive variations and they're task specific and then on top of that limb specific. So then how are we going to look at this to get anything out of it? Like at some point, isn't the technology supposed to just turn all this crazy stuff into numbers so we can stop being boneheads <laughs> and just being like, well, it just says X and now we can figure it out. You know? So if we can't do that, then how do you see us diving into the data to actually be able to understand the data? Yeah. And I think that, which is a really good question. And, and most of the perception that we have of how we use data probably comes from closed skill sports, right? So you're cycling and you're rowing and you can really use the data to drive performance and, um, and, and training. But in the minute you come into open skilled sports, actually that data now can be sometimes misleading if you don't appreciate the fact that um, there is so much else going on in and around the movement that you're making. And when you get to open skilled sports, we then have to consider whether we've been somewhat reductionist in our in our opinion of, of how we're going to use that data, as though we can drill down to the eccentric part of a counter movement jump in and amongst this everything else. And, and that that be in some way indicative of who's going to score more goals or cover more distance on the pitch. So so we can take each of those metrics in this in this light um, in an open skilled sport, but it will only be indicative of one small element of performance. But that one small element might not feed back into the bigger picture because, again, if we take the example of in and around football, there's still all the different technical and tact uh, tactical factors that, that will feed into that. So I, I think that at the moment, at least, we have that many metrics that it's probably muddy in the water uh, a little bit. I don't think it's helping us as much as hindering us at the moment until we kind of get our heads uh, around that and how we start to move forwards. Um, but what it can do really is provide some um, advice and indication about how we train. But the, the, as long as we accept that that's what it does, rather than assuming this to be really feeding into the, in, into the, the bigger picture and really driving all of our strategies, then there's no problem with that. We have to have checks and we have to better um, consider what the right training intervention is, whether our athletes are getting better or not at a particular point. But it's okay to be reductionist then. It's when we then try to take that data and feed it into the larger picture of who's going to win games, who's going to um, make the best decisions on the pitch that we have a problem. I think I'll just feed in on that as well. Just to, I'll just contextualise some of the stuff that we're looking into uh, hopefully towards the end of my PhD investigation. So I'll just kind of map back to what Anthony said about using data for sports like cycling or rowing. To stay on the topic that we started talking about, people have tried to measure like asymmetry and angular velocity or cadence in cycling, something like that, and determined that if you're imbalanced, 
do you then cycle slower in a time trial or something like that? And there's not been that many studies on that. And Sean will testify to that. And I think one has said, yes, it makes you slower. And one has said, actually, being asymmetrical makes you faster. <laughs> right. So with only two studies, you don't really know what to do. So when you take uh, Anthony's other example of using a sport like football, where there's so many uncontrollable variables, what we're also looking into is collecting pre and post match day jump data okay on two jump tests so a unilateral counter movement and a unilateral drop jump and we get obviously pre-match jump scores pre-match asymmetry data for both tests across whatever metrics we want because we're doing it on a force plate so we can be as thorough as we want to but then we're also trying to correspond the change in asymmetry and the post-match asymmetry to in-game GPS metrics. And it sounds really simple, right? But no one's done this yet. And it gives us an indication as to how, you know, fatigue kind of uh, is playing a role, or how I say fatigue, or how match play is, is interacting with that change in asymmetry. So does the asymmetry get much bigger because you know, they did more high speed running, they covered more distance, they, they did more explosive running, that sort of thing. And really lucky, actually, we'll be able to do this for repeated matches throughout this soccer season. And it's enabling us to get a little bit more of a picture as to the changing nature of asymmetry in such a sport that has so many uncontrollable variables. And, and if, even if you think about that, that's even come from doing it in isolation first with the study with Will, yeah. where we look at repeated sprints. So you do it in isolation. So you take that reductionist view, you do it in isolation to see whether there's something to go on. You see that across repeated sprints in a controlled environment, asymmetry starts to increase. And then you think, okay, let's take this into the bigger picture now. Now, whilst that asymmetry might not necessarily, or that change in asymmetry might not necessarily affect the result, it might not affect the distance that they cover. It's still something to be aware of in the athlete that might have consequences moving forwards for the following day's recovery, for training, and in the subsequent match. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. the best way to think about that is it gives us like a flag and a potential for an early warning system that we can mm -hmm. then have conversations with the player, yes. with the coaches, with the rest of the sports med team, and we can then make a decision. But it's not leading us. It's just kind of flagging things up for us to lead. Yeah, absolutely. It's about trying to determine, like I think I said at the beginning, it's about trying to determine, can we use the concept of asymmetry as part of the monitoring process? Because, again, still not really sure that we know that answer yet. So hopefully by doing this throughout a season across multiple games, it might go some distance to answering that question potentially. So you're doing this match day minus plus one, or you're doing this prior to the match and then post-match? Yeah, with the original plan. Uh, so we've actually, we published a study um, off a single match in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research, which looked at um, pre-match jump scores, post-match jump scores, and then match day plus one, match day plus two, match day plus three. And obviously, whilst we did that for jump scores, it also gave us an impression as to what happens to asymmetry during that kind of sort of acute fatigue period after a game. But it was only one match. We wanted to go back and do the same process as part of my PhD. But uh, going back sort of match day plus one, two and three was turning out to be difficult because of the constraints of the club that we we're going to work in. So we have pre-match data. Uh, where we go and collect the jumps about two hours before a match. 
And then we have post-match data on the same day where they come in and they just do my tests again 10 minutes after the final whistle's blown. So they've literally come in straight off the pitch into the changing room, put their trainers on, and they come and do my testing again, which is really lucky, really fortunate that the coaches are letting us do that. And I think they're trying to do that across multiple matches will, will help us to identify trends if there are any there. I think it'll be really neat to see too. No, for going back, first of all, you said this sounds easy enough, and I'm just shaking my head like, no, this sounds like there's like <laughs> there's so much data you could mine out of this. I don't even know because the first thing that pops in my head is if we're talking asymmetries, the first thing that I just as a guy that's been stuck in the basketball world for 15 years, all I'm thinking is X cells, D cells, change of direction, like what effect would high speed lateral change of direction accelerations and your D cells have as an effect on this. Cause I'd almost think that like, because un unless you're a wing midfielder, your high speed running distance isn't going to be super far in a, in a real match. But I would almost think that that would be what would break them down a bit. You know, when you're looking at that left to right imbalance, but I don't know, that's just me just spitballing. It probably also get exacerbated. Uh, something I put in one of my presentations in the past. It's probably going to get exacerbated by uh, positional differences as well. Like if you play on the right, you can't cut to the right off your left leg because you'll go out of play. <laughs> yeah, right. So you know, if you're a traditional winger or wide player, you're obviously going to cut in in the same direction. You know, most of the times. And obviously, when you consider the sort of you know, the additional eccentric, you know, actions coupled with sharp changes of direction. I definitely think, that, you know, Anthony's point about strength capacity really starts to have a, you know, more focus then. Yeah. And then you'll, you'll play different matches. So you'll have teams that might play, for example, um, a high press. And so that's loads more decelerations and, and then that brings into loads more types of um, a potential for imbalances. But then again, you might have the tolerance to, to handle that, but you play three games in a row like that, having not played many against many teams that, that, that offer that sort of opposition. And that's probably when you become a, it becomes a problem. I think when you do things out of the ordinary, that's when these imbalances can come out and grab you. If you always play the same style against the same person, defenders always show you into, inside the pitch, then you have you've developed the imbalances that suit that style of play. Then all of a sudden you come against another defender that shows you outside the pitch. And now you're making, you know, a hundred, 200 extra turns off the other foot that you wasn't, that you've not been built to do. You've not been designed to do. And now if you breach a strength tolerance or a strength capacity within that leg, that then is when, when things start to get a bit ugly. So as long as you always play within the constraints that you've been brought up in, you're, the chances are you're probably okay, assuming you have, you know, regular rest and recovery as per normal. I think it's a, a series of bouts outside of the norm that expose the weaker leg to a capacity that it just doesn't have. I love it. And then, obviously, the biggest one that I think might have a crazy impact on it is wins and losses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so far, we've got four matches done so far this season um, with at this club. And 
The only comment I can give you is that I'm four for four. So I've been down and they've won all four matches. So uh, I can't <laughs> actually tell you, mate. Lucky job. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I can't tell you what... <laughs> it sounds like I'm making that up, but I'm really not. And uh, I can't tell you what, like, athlete motivation is like after they walk into the changing room after a loss, because truthfully, I haven't experienced it yet. And I don't want them to lose, right? But in some ways, it would actually probably be quite useful to see how that interaction, you know, if it has an effect and whether or not that manifests itself in a jump score, I don't know, but I'd probably be able to tell just from interacting with the athlete and talking to them when they walk into the, you know, the gym after the game. So, yeah. All right, fellas. Well, let me get you out of here on this one. You know, we've got three guys leading from the front, digging in, pulling the numbers, looking at what we're doing, trying to find better ways to understand what these imbalances and whatever of the three planes we're talking about. Where do you see this going when it comes to driving coaches forward? Where do you see us in the future looking at this in order to, to better the men and women that we get the opportunity to work with? Do you want me to dive yeah, in? Sure, you sure. Well, the ultimate thing is we need to do more research. And I know it's the standard scientific cop-out, but we don't know how training interventions are affecting things. Um, one of the problems with that is it's bloody hard to do controlled trials with good levels of athletes, particularly when we're doing something potentially that could positively impact one group, but not positively, positively impact another group. So it's hard to have real controlled trials there. So I guess it's up to kind of us coaches on the shop floor to kind of start playing around with this and seeing what happens. Because it's going to be different in different groups of athletes. And the only way you can really know is to try things out yourself and see what happens. Also, I think it will highlight, and and Chris has actually just done some really nice research on this, but um, as other groups, uh, on having more unilateral type exercises in, in programming. It will make people scream and shout about them a little bit, a little bit more. Um, with more awareness on the fact that you have this imbalance and it can be corrected by doing more unilateral exercises, um, which in themselves don't seem to have any real negative effect on performance at, at, at some level as well. And Chris has just done a paper on, on this that you could probably elaborate on, which I think is really, really interesting. Yeah, uh, uh, as we were saying earlier, like the, the training interventions out there are very few and far between, which is a shame. I'll just, um, uh, before that, I'll just talk about a couple that have been done. So one came out of Mike Stone's group by a, a first author called Basilic, Chris Basilier, I think is his name. And basically, he just did a, a seven-week back squat training program in like college athletes. And uh, he kind of subsequently divided the group up into strong and weak. And I think I don't think they report it this way in the paper, but basically the strong group are pretty much two times body weight back squat. And the weaker group are, I think that I worked out based off the numbers, approximately 1.55 times body weight back squat. So I wouldn't classify the weak group as weak, but, you know, uh, this, this research has come out of Mike Stone's group and, um, you know, they they like that two times body weight figure, don't they? Um, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But what they did show, actually, is that just the, the asymmetry significantly reduced in the weak group just from doing back squat training. 
And it sounds weird because intuitively you wouldn't think that doing a bilateral exercise would reduce an asymmetry. But we use that paper quite a lot in sort of some of our explanations and discussions in research because it highlights that actually you don't necessarily have to add in loads of unilateral based exercises, but it's actually just about good quality training and just getting stronger, which backs up Anthony's point earlier. The other point to kind of combat Sean's problem, which I completely recognize, is that whilst it is really difficult to do randomized controlled trials on training interventions with a control group, uh, there's a guy in Spain called Oliver Gonzalo Scott, and he's done um, about two or three training interventions now where he directly compares a bilateral training intervention to a unilateral training intervention. All right. And he's done it in some relatively decent, high quality athletes. So the bilateral group will do back squats, counter movement, jumps and drop jumps. And the unilateral group will do a Bulgarian split squat, single leg counter movement jumps and single leg drop jumps. And obviously there's a focus there, not just on reducing asymmetry, but looking on the effects on performance metrics in general. And actually one of his early papers, I think it was a couple of years ago, showed that you can reduce the asymmetry much better from the unilateral training intervention. But if you actually dive down into the, the numbers on the table of results, they actually both reduce the asymmetry, both training interventions. It's just the unilateral one did it better. So again, I, I'm kind of meeting halfway between what Sean and Anthony said, which is until we get more of these, we probably don't have enough information to go on what the right thing to do is. But I, I, I always say to our students and coaches alike that, it should always just relate back to the needs analysis for the athlete. You know, we don't really want to get bogged down in trying to correct an asymmetry. If one, we don't really understand it. And two, if we're trying to almost crowbar in a test to look for something, if it's not really necessary for the athlete and, you know, good common sense and training protocols that aligns to what the athlete needs should always take a priority. Um, and I guess, until we've got more interventions, it's tough to give you a real definitive answer on that, really. Sorry. <laughs> but I think in terms of, like you've described it really well, Chris, in terms of good quality training will naturally reduce asymmetries. And what I think we've all seen from what we've done is those asymmetries tend to be lower in stronger, more well-trained, more what we define as athletic groups. And perhaps if we think of that in like a view of, just having a greater window of opportunity in that weaker limb. If we train well, that naturally is going to develop more than our stronger limb, regardless of whether we do bilateral or unilateral training, we're going to naturally reduce that asymmetry. If you think about it as like a diet analogy, if we improve our general diet, we're probably going to improve things like insulin sensitivity and things like that without actually targeting that. I love it. I love it. Fellas, this is absolutely fantastic. Uh, where can people see more of what you're doing and, and follow along with all the work you guys are doing out there? On um, ResearchGate, if they follow us on ResearchGate, they'll better get access to our articles. We're usually pretty good when people request request stuff, so everything we're doing is on there, really. Yeah, yeah same. same. Yeah, I think we're all on um, Twitter as well, and I have got the old Instagram as well, as much as I may not like it. It's uh, needs must in S&C now, it seems. Yeah. That it is. That it is. I'm good, bad, or indifferent, I guess. You know, it just people got to see it, I guess. Yeah, you can either moan about it or embrace it. Yeah. Absolutely. Or both. Yeah. <laughs> but listen, fellas. Moan about it on it. It's the yeah, future. No doubt. Well, fellas, 
Truly appreciate the time. This is sensational. People are going to love it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks, Jay. Appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah, we'll be in touch real soon, fellas. Thank you. And a huge thank you to Chris Bishop, Dr. Sean Maloney, and Dr. Anthony Turner for spending the time with us today. Guys, I mean, uh, three men that are leading from the front, breaking down the numbers, doing the research, diving into the data, and trying to find better ways that we can improve our athletes' health and performance. I cannot thank these three men enough for not just spending the time with us, but being so open, honest, and candid, and really pulling the profession from the front to make us all better. Gentlemen, can't thank you enough. Keep up the great work. It's truly appreciated. Um, And this absolutely was sensational stuff. So I can't thank you guys enough. And as always, guys, if you did enjoy the talk, please share it through the social media outlet of your choice. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it may be. As always, we are just trying to get the best information out there to all the great coaches that we can. And as always, guys, thank you for everything that you do for us here at Central Virginia Sport Performance. We will be back next week with another awesome guest. We will see you then.